When you think about liberation, what comes to mind? And I know that word alone can seem heavy. So is it intentional action, maybe physical protests, thoughtful contemplation? And before we introduce today's guest, I want to share a story. At the start of COVID, or perhaps it was around this time last year when everything was spiraling out of control or so it seemed, I went deep into organization and minimalism. I may have supported the entire home organization self-help book industry at one point. And okay, (laughs) that's not exactly a point I'm proud of, but also if the library has algorithms and who checks out what books, I'm definitely being profiled as we speak. At any rate, I share this story because while I didn't see the connection then between liberation and simplifying, I saw it after we spoke with our guest and read her book, Less Can Be Liberation. So today, as we move into our last month of our Summer of Action, we interview Christine Platt, who is also known as the Afro-Minimalist. She is fantastic. And so in preparation for this episode, we want you to close your eyes, not if you're driving, keep those eyes open then, and picture what is a minimalist space. What does that look like? Do you have that image? And then as you open your eyes, we want you to ask yourself, whose aesthetic is this? Is it a white aesthetic and not just white in nature? As you listen to this episode, after you hear what Christine has to say, we challenge you to tell five people about this episode and then start examining how minimalism is liberation, but also how many ways there are to view minimalism that aren't just part of the mainstream narrative. And then go and buy your book, The Afro Minimalist, to go dive deeper. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Christine, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes. Hi, my name is Christine Platt. I am also known as the Afro-Minimalist. I am a mama, a writer. I serve as the interim managing director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. I do a lot of things. I just got to consider myself a Renaissance woman, which I think so many mothers are. And so, yeah, that's me. I love it. One of the things that really struck me and struck us was this idea. You had this line. It said, living with less is not only liberating, Less is liberation. It is. Oh, it is such a beautiful line. So I'm drawn to this. I grew up as the daughter of the person who loves keeping physical memories. Preach. That is my family as well. <laughs> so, right? yes, it's, it's this conscious choice, like a shift I've had to make over the years, especially once my kids got past that sort of plastic toys everywhere stage. Yes to simplify more, to appreciate my surroundings. I love energy and feng shui and reiki and all of the things. And so I guess there's also a lot of energy around minimalism. You know, it's so funny. So, you know, of course I'm known as the Afro-minimalist because that is sort of the moniker that I picked for myself when I started this journey. But, you know, Had I known then what I know now, I mean, Afro-intentionalist doesn't have the same ring to it, but, (laughs) you know, living with less is really more so living with intention, right? And so when I talk about less being liberation, I really want people to think about being more intentional than minimalist, because what has happened is minimalism 
the minute we hear that word, it automatically evokes a certain aesthetic and image, right? You know, you're like, oh, they're minimalists. Like, oh, they must live with 50 things or, oh, they live with whatever's on their back, right? And really so many minimalists are really just intentionalists. It's being very intentional about what you have, not just in your wardrobe, not just in your home, but even in just your life, right? And so I always say that minimalism is sort of this gateway to living with intention because there's no way that you can just be intentional with your wardrobe or your home decor and not have, you know, the feelings that come with intention not trickle into every area of your life. And the things that we have around us, you know, they do, they carry a certain type of energy. For example, as a writer, I just cannot create the same way in clutter, right? Like I cannot, it is distracting. It is, it's almost has a weight to it. And, you know, all of these things that are on my desk have to move before I can really create. And, you know, what is so liberating. And when I say less is liberation is that once you sort of minimize and you have just like everything that you have is very intentional, serves a purpose, is something that you need, use, and love. A lot of the extra, I call it extraness, that we have to do in our homes and in our lives sort of sheds away, right? Because, you know, it takes me less time to clean. It, you know, it takes me less time in the morning to get dressed. It, all these little moments where we feel like, oh, I just spent 30 minutes trying to figure, that's 30 minutes that you could have been spent doing something else more intentionally than trying to figure out what you were going to wear, right? You know, I remember spending my weekends, literally my weekends, cleaning and organizing our home, right? And organizing back then for me was like, I'm going to buy another bin and basket (laughs) and put all the toys in there. (laughs) Yay, we're organized, right? (laughs) We're like hiding clutter, you know, and I just don't have to do that now, right? Like, I mean, take me maybe an hour to clean my home, you know? And so, yeah, like there's so many, the liberation piece will be different for everyone, depending on what your lifestyle is and, you know, what your needs are, what your family dynamics are, but you feel these moments of liberation and you're just like, I got time, sanity, resources back, which is, I mean, it is the best feeling in the world. I'm breathing that all in as I look at my desk and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I feel the weight, you know, but you realize, you know, how I feel like I have to have these things around me because I have to get them all done. But I was able to still step away from a computer for a whole week last week and not be that far behind. I mean, I had a lot to catch up on yesterday at the computer for the first time, but you realize how much less we can actually do with and that idea of spending only an hour having to go through and not have to like redecorate and dust everything and like go through all the stuff. Oh my goodness. That feeling. I feel it. Like I remember when I talk about this in the book, when I first started my journey, it was this beautiful summer day and I'm like looking out the window, longing to be outside. <laughs> like, honey, you can't go outside. Like you need to clean this house. Right. And you know, You pick up the candles that with unlit wicks, right? And there's like dust settled in there, right? Or you move this over and you're like, why do we even have this trinket? And I'm just like, why do we have all this stuff? But it's so, you know, I love that you talked about 
you know, both of you coming from families, you know, there is this sort of like inherited clutter (laughs) piece too that I like to talk about, but so much of who we are often like starts in our childhood, right? So, and obviously in so many different areas in our life, I like to encourage people before they like jump into this whole decluttering, I got to get rid of all this stuff. It's like, let's first start to think about why we have more than we need, right? And, you know, this is like this aspect I feel from mainstream minimalism that is missing. Like there's this misconception that you can just like, oh, I'm going to get rid of my stuff. Yay, I'm free. And it's like, yeah, it's also an emotional journey, right? So first understanding why you have more than you need and then understanding why it's so hard to let go. And so many of us have so much more than we need because, you know, it's rooted in our childhoods, whether we grew up with scarcity or abundance, you know, depending on our ages, you know, like my mom grew up right after the Great Depression. And like, even now, she's at my house. And you know, sometimes there's like a little bit of coffee left in the pot. And you're like, Oh, let me throw this away right quick. And she's like, don't throw that down the drain. And I'm like, Mom, it's caffeinated. You don't even drink caffeinated coffee. You drink decaf, which I don't even know why that's a thing, but whatever, you know, and I'm just like, what? but she cannot waste. The idea of that coffee going down the drain is waste for her, right? And that's so interesting because for me, my mom, like post-war Japan mm-hmm. and my grandmother instilled in me whenever I would sp- spend time with her, you don't leave a grain of rice in the rice bowl. We fought for every scrap of food that we have. And that is my legacy that's really interesting about waste. It's so interesting. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about childhood, I told my mom this story. If she's listening, she's going to love that I'm telling this story. But there would be like very rare occasions where my mom would go out of town for whatever. And my dad would be there with us, which my dad also grew up in post-war Japan, but was very much like, I want five things in my house and I only need these five things. And my mom is the opposite, right? She's like, Mm -hmm. let me keep, I think she still has my brownie uniform from when I was a brownie, (laughs) literally one year. Okay. So in kindergarten anyway. So when my mom would leave, my dad would basically give us a garbage bag and he'd be like, we need to get rid of some stuff, like go to your rooms, get rid of this stuff, like before your mom comes back, because when she sees the bag, she's going to be like going through the bag and like, no, we need this. We need this. And it was mm-hmm. interesting because they had such disparate styles. Right. And they're still in this house, which has a lot of a lot of stuff. But it was interesting because I think what I took from that was the living with less, right? It was very much yeah. like what I wanted to do. And this house is very much like that. And I see it now when I talk to my kids, I'm like, pick up your stuff. We need five things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've just channeled my dad like fully. We become our parents, I, I know. But yeah, like it just, and it, you know, it trickles into so many different areas. One of the stories that I love sharing is one of my good girlfriends, her and her husband are very wealthy. And it's just so funny to see just the different dynamics um, that they have with their wealth. But anyway, her husband, he was in the kitchen washing dishes one day, just like, girl, he's washing dishes. Look at that. You know, and she's like, I hate that he uses so much dish soap. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, look, like the bubbles are like overflowing out of the sink. And she was like, I laughed about it. I was like the same way. I'm like, sis, he's washing dishes, like be happy. Right. (laughs) But I saw that she was like really, really annoyed. And I said, have you ever just asked him why? Like, just ask him why he uses so much dish soap. 
And so she told me a few days later that she did. And he had actually been raised by his grandmother. They grew up very, very poor. I mean, like in poverty in the deep South. And he, you know, his grandmother would always go to like, you know, the dollar store and get dish soap. And even then he could only use a drop. So he never got to see bubbles. And so now as an adult, this is what he does, right? He gets the most expensive dish soap and he uses an egregious amount and he is fulfilling this unfulfilled childhood want, right? And so like I've spoken to so many people and when we get to talk about our childhoods, like all these things on earth, right? It's the, you know, the guy who wanted a pair of Jordans and his parents said no. And so now he's a sneakerhead, right? Like now that I'm an adult, I buy as many Jordans as I want, right? You know, there's so many little things like that, but not just our childhoods. Like there's societal expectations. There's, you know, cultural expectations. There's so many different things that contribute to why we have more than we need. And I think it's so important to figure out those things for yourself first and then get to understand why it's so hard to let go, which is really rooted in the psychology of ownership, which I had to do like this whole deep dive for the book. And I was just blown away because I had never heard about the psychology of ownership. We all know about the legality of it, right? Like this is legally mine. But the psychology of ownership is like really believing that something is yours. And we see it with our kids, right? Like they're like, you know, they go to the playground, they're playing on a swing and some other kid and they're like, this is my swing. You're like, this actually belongs to the state, but okay. You know, like that quickly. And it's because we form attachments to things. That's what makes it so hard for us to let go of things, right? So it's just like, Minimalism and living with less. And I mean, there's so much more to it than, you know, just figuring out whether something serves you. You know, I love Marie Kondo. I've conmar in my closet a million times, <laughs> right? But, you know, there's all, it's so much more than discovering what sparks joy, right? Because if you don't understand why you have more than you need and why it's so hard for you to let go of certain things, you find yourself back in the same situation, over and over and over again. So you hear people and they're like, this is my 20th time decluttering. (laughs) It's like, and this is why, right? Let's figure out why you keep buying some of the same things that you have just let go of, right? Anyway, it's this whole fascinating thing. And it's actually rooted in marketing, right? Like, I mean, I didn't even, most of the research that I was able to find that I felt was most informative and compelling was from marketing. They are very much aware of the psychology of ownership, the power of touch. You know, we go in, not going to name any stores. Maybe it's red with the bullseye, right? And we go in there (laughs) and we go in there and, you know, we just see something beautiful. Then we touch it. And this feeling of partial ownership happens and partial ownership makes you want to have full ownership. Then you start looking around. God forbid if it's on sale, right? Like no one else can get this deal. All of a sudden, it's something like you didn't even need it two minutes ago. It's not even on your list. And now you have to have it. So I have a little mantra. You all want to know my mantra? (laughs) Because I was a bargain shopper. Yes, I totally need some practical. Give me something here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 
So I was a bargain shopper and that started in childhood with my mom. We would go shopping on the weekends. Well, shopping in my eyes, we were in the mall on the weekends. In my mind, we were shopping and living our best lives. (laughs) She may have only bought like a lipstick or a pair of shoes for work, but I'm, you know, I just associated the mall with fun and leisure, right? And good times, because that's what I have with my mom. And so by the time I was an adult, I was just like this full on bargain shopper every weekend in the mall. And I had to get to the point where I told myself like, Christine, it's not a deal if you don't need it. And so today when I go into store, like anthropology is my jam, I'm just going to keep it 100. Like that store for me, and the red store with the bullseye, those are the stores where I like really have to have some conversations with myself. And I'll go in there and it's inevitable that you're going to see something. I have to say, Christine, it's not a deal if you don't need it. I know it's 75% off, but you're not saving. You know, you're actually wasting money, right? If it's something that you don't need. So I really think it's so important for us to really, you know, just do like some self-discovery and and figuring out why we feel so compelled to have so many things, whether it's our wardrobe or our home, you know, like what are the root causes of that? You know, I really appreciate that. And I find it easiest to not obviously get clutter when, you know, times are tougher financially. I was a total thrift store shopper growing up. Like, I wanted to ask you this. So there's like the deal part of stuff, right? There's like the, oh, I just, I touch it, the partial ownership. That is fascinating, the psychology of ownership. But when it comes to picking your own aesthetic too, you know, you mentioned earlier on this idea of the white minimalist aesthetic, which when you say it, I mean, I can picture it. Oh, we all know it. Right, we do, right? Can you describe that a little bit? But also then help me understand this transition. Because say I want to adopt more like less clutter, more my style. Mm -hmm. Do you pick a thing on a Pinterest page and go, that's what I want it to look like? Or do you go through your space and like check yourself? It's the latter. I mean, yeah, Pinterest is, you know, it can be a danger zone. I will say that when it comes to trying to emulate someone else's aesthetic, right? So let me go back. So When it comes to minimalism and when it comes to mainstream minimalism in particular, what has happened is that there's this certain aesthetic that has become associated with minimalism. It's the all white barren aesthetic that we know so well. It looks so serene. It looks so peaceful. It looks so beautiful. And we look around our homes and we're like, oh my God, I want to be in that Pinterest picture so bad, right? Is someone who actually like literally decluttered, painted all their walls white, had the white bedding, had the white curtains, right? And I was like, this is my Pinterest moment. And I was like, I hate this, right? Like it felt, it just didn't feel like me, right? And it and it was how I came up, you know, with the Afro minimalist and also one of my you know, another mantras, I'm full of mantras, y'all just so you know. (laughs) And it's when you are, well, just in life in general, but in particular with your aesthetic, you know, you always have to choose authenticity over aesthetics, right? And the most authentic version of you and the things that you love are already in your home, right? They're already there. You may just have to do some decluttering and uncovering of some things to figure out what that is, right? And so I'll give you an example. Courtney Carver is a dear friend of mine. And 
you know, I met her through Project 333. And by the time I found out about Project 333, for those of you who don't know, it's where you choose 33 items and you just rewear those items over the course of three months, which for a lot of people, they're like, that sounds so crazy. Like, there's no way I can do that. The reality is most of us actually do that every day. But we don't even realize it, right? We go in our closets and we shift, 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 and we end up picking out the same pairs of jeans, the same shirt, right? Like we have our favorites, right? But there's something comforting or, you know, whatever it is for people that to keep their closet like really full. So by the time I had been introduced to Courtney, my closet had been, you know, significantly downsized but I still felt like I had so much stuff. And when I had to pick out 33 pieces, that's when I was like, oh, I have to be really intentional about what my 33 pieces are. And I discovered, I don't really like pairing tops and bottoms. Like that's just something else for me to think about. So for me, it's mostly dresses and jumpsuits, right? When it came to my aesthetic, it was thinking about you know, what are those things that really bring me joy and make me happy? And it's color, it's, you know, patterns and textures that are representative of the African diaspora and African American history and culture, right? So infusing those into your space gives you your own authentic aesthetic and decor and style, right? And so, you know, I think Pinterest and Instagram and all of these platforms, they're great for inspiration, right? But like trying to emulate them is I feel like where so many folks make a mistake. And, you know, it's also, again, because of this idea that mainstream minimalism has put out that minimalism is supposed to look this way. And many, I am not the only practicing minimalist that has a lot of color, a lot of prints, a lot of texture in their homes because they're just living with intention and authenticity. And that's what their space looks like. You know, is that helpful? Oh, totally. I mean, it reminds me of this line from your TEDx talk that I loved. It was, if you don't define yourself, you'll be crushed into other people's fantasy of you and eaten alive. Yes. If you don't define yourself for yourself, it will happen. Right. And that's Audre Lorde. And it's so true. And I think it happens to so many of us. Right. And I mean, we're all moms. We know, like, I mean, there's so many aspects of our life where we, you know, it's so easy to get crushed into other people's fantasies of what we should be, right? And if you allow that to happen, it really has a way of destroying your authentic self. You know, my daughter is actually getting ready to go off to college, which I can't even believe it. There's so many mixed emotions there. But I have friends who, you know, they're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? And they're like, how did you know you wanted to write? How did you know? And I've never stopped doing what I loved. I mean, I obviously wasn't able to do it at the same level and intensity as a mom, but I remember getting up at like five in the morning when the house was like quiet and still and just stealing in some time to write for an hour. Right. But, you know, so many of my friends have been crushed into this fantasy of what motherhood is supposed to be. And now that, you know, our girls are getting ready to go off to school, they're just like, I don't even remember what I love to do. I don't even know what I did before I was a mom, right? And so, I mean, I think it's applicable to just so many aspects, you know, of our lives. 
I remember reading that the real simple article about you. And I, first of all, I was like, bookmark this because this is amazing. And then I read that line that said she left her job as a lawyer to pursue writing full time. And I was like, I am here for that because (laughs) as a lawyer myself and as someone who has left the law several times and come back and then leave it again. um, I love that because that's really, you know, grounded in who you are. And all of this is so intentional, right? around the work that you do. And I also loved that you were talking about, you know, the colors and the textures and how those are important to you. And really that focus on history and heritage that I think like based on your studies and all of that really comes into play and is so intentional. I just love that about what you've been saying. Thank you. It's, it's funny too. Like I know so many lawyers who have transitioned into other careers and, you know, when young people come up to me and they're like, I think I want to be a lawyer, like inside, I'm like, no, billable hours, you don't, you know, but then I also think about like, gosh, the skills are so transferable, right? Like the way that we know how to manage time, the way that we know how to do research, the way that we know how to write and communicate, right? And so, you know, whenever you want to hop out as many times as you want to hop out, you know, there are just so many things that you can use those skills and that it's, uh, you know, transferable for. But, you know, I was a lawyer here in D.C. and it just, I mean, the billable hours, it was intense. You know, our daughter was young and I did what, you know, there's like this, depending on the city that you're in, there's like this trajectory that lawyers take and they're either like on this path to partner or they're, you know, thinking they're on this path to partner and they're like, this is never going to work for me. Right. So you go from big firm to medium firm, to small firm, to government. And then you're like, what's left. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, that's kind of what happened to me. And yeah, I, you know, left that career and transitioned when I was actually working as a senior policy advisor at the U S department of energy, which is probably like one of the cushiest sort of roles that I could have gotten as a lawyer, but you know, I was in my early thirties, right? And I was like, this could not be where I plateau. Like, this is not it. And uh, <laughs> you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. And, oh, I know. <laughs> and I remember one of my friends, she said, you know, we should do National Novel Writing Month. This is like, you know, our girlfriends are like everything. Like, when I reflect on these times, I'm just like, thank God I had some of the people that I had in my life. But she said it was actually November 2013 at the time. We should do National Novel Writing Month. And I was like, what is that? It sounds completely nerdy. National Novel Writing Month. And she's like, yeah, it's where you commit to write a novel in a month. And I was like, that's insane. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. We signed up. And uh you're not really writing a novel. You're writing a good first draft of a novel. You really are committing to write, you know, 50,000 words, which I did, which I was able to do while still serving as a senior policy advisor to a child that was in middle school. You know what I mean? That just kind of lets you know, like where I was. Yeah. And it reawakened this love for storytelling you know, for really digging into those aspects of history and culture that I hadn't been able to do since undergrad and grad school. And it just reawakened, you know, this light in me and uh, yeah, just changed the whole trajectory 
of my life. You know, that National Novel Writing Month book was called The Truth About a Wee Tea. I independently published it, had a little book launch party with like my closest friends and, you know, just checked it off as this amazing milestone. And, you know, when your friends and family are like, oh my God, this book is so good. You're like, yeah, right. You know, then I started hearing from like, professors and they're like, I'm going to use this book to teach. And I start here and I'm just like, what is happening? And that book is the book that got me my literary agent. And now here I am. Isn't that wild? On reflection, it was just this, you know, lesson in being like super in, you know, just remembering what brought me joy and being very intentional about pursuing that, right? Because, you know, after I had the 50,000 words, like, I mean, the the novel is over 80,000 words, right? So like, I couldn't just sit with that draft. I was like, this awakens something. I want this to be something. I want it to become a book, right? And then, you know, feeling like I want this career. The way that I feel right now is the way that I want to feel every day. Not like I'm plateauing, not like you know, waiting until the 11th hour to do my work just to have some sense of (laughs) excitement, you know? And so, yeah, like, I feel like there's so many things that we can reflect on that really will allow us to sort of tap into that authenticity, those parts of ourselves that we may have forgotten or that we may have allowed to be crushed into someone else's fantasy, right? So I always tell people, think back, right? What were you doing before? What brought you joy before? If you're married, what did your home look like when it was just you, you know, your single girl living in your house, right? Like, what did your first apartment look like, right? Like, just remembering those parts of yourself that we so often tend to forget and lose over time. They're still there. I love that. I'm remembering my apartment in Tokyo, Misasha. And I think you came over and you're like, did we go back to primary school? Like I had all of these bright colors everywhere. <laughs> it was like my child was set free to decorate my own space finally. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there are so many ways that you can still do that. Right. Like I have friends, you know, maybe there are muted tones, you know, sort of throughout their home because it is a shared space with the spouse and children. Right. But you know, their office, one of my friends, our office is painted bright green. Like it's, bright green. And it's so beautiful, right? And that is a space that just gives them so much joy and pleasure and energy and, you know, awakens that inner child and who knows what green was to them when they were younger, but whatever it does to them, having that space that's theirs, it's beautiful, you know? So yeah, that's how I encourage folks to kind of, you know, find their authentic selves, look in your closets we tend to gravitate towards the same silhouettes, right? Like, of course, I had a bunch of tops and bottoms because like you have tops and bottoms, right? But it wasn't until I was, I really had to be intentional about what 33 pieces that I'm going to wear where I'm like, actually, I don't really wear those tops and bottoms all that much, you know? During my first decluttering session, (laughs) y'all will love this. I remember, because I was also a thrift shopper, Sarah. Oh my gosh. So I live here in D.C. My mom is in Annapolis. Oh, to anyone listening, I'm telling you, do go, but also don't go (laughs) to the Goodwill in Annapolis. It was just this magical place, right? And so always go to this Goodwill in Annapolis. There's a mall nearby. I feel like the mall would like, you know, give part of their donation. I don't know, but it was like fabulous, okay? So I would have all this stuff. And I remember going through my first round of decluttering and counting all of my jeans. And I had over 50 pairs of jeans and I always wore the same two, always. 
your favorite pairs of jeans, right? You have these moments where you're just like, what? I mean, they were like just stacked across the top of my closet, right? And, you know, it goes back to that. It's not a deal if you don't need it, right? For someone else, their trigger is something different. For me, it was always the deal. It was this thrill of this hunt of getting this deal. And then I would get it home and it would go on the top of the closet, right? And I didn't realize how bad of a problem I had (laughs) until I was decluttering. And I just remember like finding all these things with tags still attached and red labels and, you know, because they always like conveniently put the sticker where you can see just how much of a deal you're getting, (laughs) right? And I was so attached to getting this deal that it was hard for me to really understand, like, it's not a deal if you don't need it, right? And so that's my mantra. How do you gently talk to yourself when you're getting rid of that, right? Because as you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, my jeans. Like, I know what you speak of, but I have like, a pair of jeans say that I'm like, well, they may be the only one that can fit a pair of boots. So I should, in case I want to wear the one pair of cowboy boots that I might wear once every two years. How do I gently part with these things without beating myself up? Like, how is that transition? How do you recommend that? Okay, Sarah, I am so glad you said that because that is this other layer of minimalism that people never talk about when they talk about decluttering. And it is... If we want to have a holistic approach to decluttering, it's acknowledging that we have too much is really step one. And step two is forgiving ourselves, right? So where we find ourselves when we have these 50 plus pairs of jeans, you know, these reasons that we are keeping them because they fit our one (laughs) pair of boots that we rarely wear, right? Like we find ourselves really in experiencing a lot of different emotions, right? In addition to this loss aversion that we feel, what if I get rid of these jeans and then I want to wear those boots and then I don't have jeans that can fit in those boots, right? Like there's this loss aversion, right? Thinking about more of what we're losing rather than what we're gaining. But there's also like anger, shame, disappointment, frustration. Like there's so many, like just waves of emotions that you experience. And to move forward, you have to forgive yourself. You know, I look at decluttering probably a little different than most people, because I really believe in a slow and steady approach, right? So if you have an attachment to those jeans for those boots, I'm going to tell you to hold on to the jeans, right? You still got 40 other pairs that you can let go of, Sarah, (laughs) right? And you keep those. And what's interesting is six months later, you may be easily able to part with those, right? But if you let it go before you're like, even the way you described it, I'm like, oh, you have an attachment to those jeans and those boots, right? So like, why? There's no reason to rush this process. Like, unless you're moving across country or you have like some sort of finite deadline that requires you to like, you gotta be out of here and all your stuff has to be out of here by this amount of time. Why are we rushing? Why do we feel like this has to be a weekend warrior mission to declutter our home, right? Like, you know, the process is meant to be intentional, right? And if that is something that you are really holding on to that you feel like, man, I don't know, I might wear these, right? Let go of other things and then come back to it six months later and see if you do. There are so many things that I thought I'd never be able to get rid of that I was easily able to part with three, six, nine months later. Like, but in the moment I couldn't do it. 
right? I'm like, no, I'm going to wear this. No, I'm going to need this. No, I'm going to, I'm not, right? And so you learn along the way. And, you know, again, thinking back to our childhoods and what we've experienced, especially folks who grew up in scarcity, it can be really hard. This process can be really, really hard to let go of. And also even like where to start, right? So, you know, for folks that really struggle with loss aversion, grew up with scarcity, you know, have, you know, just some deeper challenges around attachments, always say start with your spice cabinet, okay? It's a great place to start. You find those hardened lumps of spices and you're just like, you can let them go, right? And you see how your cabinet looks, how you feel, how now like, oh, my spices are organized. Now everything that I have, I can, and it gives you the sense of power and encouragement to move on to the next thing, right? Which I would say coffee mugs. <laughs> I'm looking at both of your faces. I know us. I purge them, but I have a spiralizer Ooh. that is in the back of the bottom cabinet, right? It's like you're supposed to stick a potato onto it and like spiral it. Yeah, no, I'm just saying what? Because I've literally never heard you talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Right, because I think I used it once like two and a half years ago. And I'm like, I'm never going to use this again. It's not worth it. I'd rather use a knife and just cut fries if I'm going to make home fries. Listen, we have all been a victim to that spiral. Okay? <laughs> like it's so funny. At the end of the year, I did this post on Instagram because I also like to take away some of the stigma that we have, especially like around emotional spending. And, you know, last year was hard for a lot of people. And so I know people they're like, Christine, there's no way Christine buys unnecessary things, right? Like we are all capable of reverting to habits and behaviors, especially for comfort. And I found myself during the pandemic just finding little things that would make me happy. And so I did this Instagram post. I wish I could show you this Apple Watch charger that actually looks like an old school Mac. Oh my God. It's so ridiculous. I didn't need it. It brought me so much joy, right? And so I shared that story and I said, all right, guys, like, let's just end this year with a bang. Like, it's been a lot. Drop it in the comments. Tell me, like, the ridiculous thing that you purchased this year. Sarah, so many spiralizers, so many egg cookers. You know, it was so funny. And there were people that were like, I bought three pounds of yeast and somebody else was like, I brought three pounds of flour. And they were like, we should get together and bake. Like it was so like just the things that we, you know, and, you know, getting to bring ourselves just like little bits of joy. Right. I think it's so important to just be cognizant and aware of that. Right. And for me, you know, it was this little Apple watch charger, but this is five years into my journey. I don't know what I would have done during the pandemic five years ago, like I probably would have had a house full of anything that was on sale, right? Because I would have been in this constant pursuit of a deal to bring myself joy, right? Which is why it's so important to just know, like, what are my triggers? What sort of mantras or systems do I need to put in place that are, you know, that are going to help me? And so, yeah, don't feel bad about the spiralizer. <laughs> so many spiralizers, right? Anything that promises or looks that it, like it is going to give us an ounce of ease in our lives. We're like, I'll try it, you know? And, you know, it brings me to, I think, you know, what I think is, you know, the next two to three steps in the journey that are also equally important, which is 
you know, when you are letting go, whether it's the spiralizer (laughs) or your egg cooker, right? It's being very intentional about how you pay it forward, right? No buy groups are amazing. Every city and community has one. I promise you, if you go online and you Google no buy group and you put in your city, that there are a group of people that are committed to not buying anything, not wasting anything, and they will take it, right? I encourage people to look at organizations in their community that might need it, right? Are there any food justice organizations? Are there any community kitchens, right? Like, So often people just look at the usual suspects like Goodwill and Salvation Army. And there's actually a term for that now, you guys. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called wish cycling. You are wishing and hoping that someone will buy the trash that you (laughs) drop off, right? And, you know, there was a beautiful article that one of the Goodwills recently wrote about. And they're like, we just, we don't want your trash. We don't want this wish cycling. Like this is not helping us at all. So if you have something that works and that is functional, really try and look at organizations in your community that could benefit from them first. Try no buy groups first, right? And then, you know, like friends, family, like there's so many different ways that you can let go of things that can help others before just dropping it off at your local thrift store. I love that because I think, you know, as we're slowly sort of emerging out of our homes, we've spent, you know, a full year plus staring at our homes. And like, I know, well, first of all, I bought that Courtney Carver book during quarantine and have slowly been like removing stuff from my closet as a result. Mm -hmm. But I think I've been hearing friends say more and more, I have these things that I don't know what and you know they've been offering them sort of around but i think that you just you know naming some of those key ways in which people can be very intentional again about what they are doing with their stuff right and it makes it easier to let go right i mean sarah you, you know you saw my ted talk <laughs> and i talk about that black casper suit right because what happens is you know as you go through each round and each round right like that first round, oh my God, you never want to go through that again, right? By the time you're on like the third or fourth round, what's left are a lot of like really nice things that you don't need to use and love, but you know, you also don't want them to just go anywhere because again, that attachment is still there. Just so you know, when you feel that, that's that attachment. And so when you pay it forward in a meaningful way, it makes it so much easier to let go of, right? Like, I could not bear the thought of, you know, that black Casper suit going to Goodwill, which even when I say that aloud is so ridiculous, right? Like it's a sense of entitlement that is like, who am I to suit is too good for Goodwill? Like, what am I really saying? Right. I was afraid to consign it. I, the consignment shop that I use here in DC, their policy is if it doesn't sell within 30 days that they donate it. Right. And I was like, they're going to say it didn't sell, but I bet one of them are going to steal it because it's so cute. And like, like you, this attachment is like, I don't need this suit. Why am I so tied and so, you know, beholden to know where it goes, what's going to happen to it. Right. But do you know how easy it was for me to let go of when I know it was going to dress for success? Like that black Casper suit was among a whole bunch of really fabulous high-end 
lawyer attire, Misha, as you know, <laughs> right, that I was never going to wear, wear again, right? But again, that was in the early stages of my journey, right? Now, I mean, like, this, my friends love it, man. The stuff that I let go of, they're just like, is it time for the next 333? What's going on, right? You know, I'm like, ah, Tory Burch bag. This, you know, like you have your designer things, but you don't have it. To me, they are still just things. They are beautiful things. And they are things that I loved and enjoyed. And I just don't have the same attachment with letting them go, which is why I was saying, Sarah, like in the beginning, it may be harder with the jeans and the boots, right? But the more you move along in your journey, it just gets so much easier because you feel that liberating feeling. And like, I just want it out of my house. Like, I don't I mean, whatever friend gets over here first, come on, y'all, it's time, <laughs> you know? So yeah, those are, for me, that's like this four-step holistic approach. First, you know, step one, acknowledging, you know, that you have too much. Step two, forgiving yourself. Step three, letting go. And step four, paying it forward. And it's a process. It's truly a journey with no destination. And you will do it time and time and time again, right? And that is the true practice of minimalism and living with less, right? There's no destination. So that's why I was like, what are you, there's no reason to rush. <laughs> it's funny to see how so many people, you know, have found themselves, you know, during the pandemic, not only just reimagining what their wardrobes can look like, but also like reimagining home, right? Like for so many of us, we were outside of our homes for like 90% of the day. And then we literally were in them 100% of the time for like a whole year. We're like, actually, this house is too small <laughs> for my family. Or actually, why do we have this much house? Then it's just the two of us, right? You know, I also tell people to reimagine their living spaces beyond what the builder intended, right? So you found people who were like, actually, our kitchen you know, is right off the dining room. And it might be great to have the homeschool right here in the dining room that we never use. So, you know, reimagine what your space could be to best serve you and your family's needs, right? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe the dining room is the homeschool. Maybe the bedroom is the office. Maybe the, you know, but we get so beholden to, again, what has been defined for us. This is the second bedroom. This is the guest bedroom. Oh, I guess I have to make it a guest bedroom, even though I don't really have any guests, right? This idea that you would have this space fully furnished, unutilized for the guests that might come once a year, you know? So I could talk about this all day. I love it so much. I love to see how people's lives are, you know, changed and transformed. And it's just a really wonderful way to learn how to live with intention. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Tell us where we can find more of you. So you can find more of me at theafrominimalist.com. I am online, mostly active on Instagram, because again, minimalism, you know, right? I mean, I have Twitter. <laughs> And Facebook, because I've had them for years, um, but not really active on them. My most engaged audience is on Instagram. And it really is like a community, right? Like we share tips, we share ideas. You know, we have those posts where, you know, somebody has three pounds of bags of yeast and somebody else has three pounds of bags of flour and now they're making bread, you know? And so, yeah, those are places where you can find me. And then I have a book coming out on June 15th. 
The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less. I am so excited about this book and just really the conversations that it's going to foster. And if anyone, if you, you know, get that book and decide to pre-order, you know, there's giveaways, there's all fun sorts of things that are happening. And so, yeah, my website and Instagram, those are the best ways to find me. Thanks so much. I'm so excited for your book. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you. And keep us posted on all things Afro Minimalist and all of the other things too. It was great to share this time with you. Thank you. Thank you. You as well. This was so great. I, you know, appreciate you all and admire your friendship so much and the work that you're doing. So just thank you for having me. This was such a treat. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.